0: Please listen carefully.
1: G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van
2: and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too.
1: Good morning, Greg. Oh, good morning to you, Stephen. How nice to be together again, virtually at least.
3: Yeah, well, we were together about a week and a half ago, and that's the reason for this conversation. But certainly uh, you're in Brisbane, I'm in Adelaide, and, uh, and COVID is uh, looking like uh, uh, my next trip to Queensland might be a bit wobbly. But that's a conversation for another podcast, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully I can get down your way, but who knows? You can't make plans, really, can you? Or you can make plans, just don't expect them to come to fruition all the time.
3: Well, that sounds like uh, urban planning one hundred and one, actually, which is not a bad <laughs> lead into what we're, we're talking about today. This is a really unique invitation. We got invited to go somewhere, didn't we? Oh, yeah. How good is that? I feel like we've cracked it. Now we got an invite. Yeah, well, and it is great because the manager of planning and development and community development, um, uh, uh, Jared, who will talk. About in a minute, actually, he said he was listening to our podcast walking along the, the foreshore and he got the idea of inviting us along. So, we're here to talk all about the city of Maryborough today.
1: Good old Maryborough in uh, Queensland, uh, just up the coast a bit from southeast Queensland.
3: Yep. So, um, very quickly, some background about Maryborough that I've Got from a highly authentic uh, source, which is Wikipedia. Uh, 255 kilometres north of uh, Brisbane, served by the Bruce Highway, uh, and the Fraser Coast Council uh, has not only Maryborough, which is a town of about sort of 28,000 people, um, but it also has Harvey Bay, which you know a bit more about than I do. But that's bigger again, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Harvey Bay is. It's a it's a common story up the coast of Queensland, where the traditional centres like Maryborough. Have been sort of overtaken in terms of growth and population by the coastal areas. People sort of wanting to go to the to the water, and uh, so Harvey Bay has sort of grown over the last thirty or forty years from a collection of sort of small villages into a you know a, about an urban place of sixty thousand or so. So, um, whereas merri uh, has tended to stay relatively stable, and uh, we'll talk a bit more about some of the uh, some of its um, experiences over the last
3: few decades. Yeah, and we will top and tail uh, the story of Harvey Bay versus Maryborough both now but also in in our conclusions. But um, certainly um, we got a really good taste of Maryborough and we're going to talk about what we did and and what we found. But most importantly, we also had a chance to to meet with the mayor and interview the mayor. And if anyone's going to know about the town or city of Maryborough, it's him.
0: Well, I think Maribor is the perfect-sized city, about 30,000 people. It's beside the river, the Mary River, and it's actually got the perfect year-round climate. The latitude we're at here is, you know, good in summer and it's good in winter. But what we're most known for now is our architecture. We were a very successful port city in the wake and during the, the Kimpy Gold Rush. Uh, you'll often find that the port cities actually do better than the goldfields, the pub owners and the banks and the warehouses, the importers. Um, So we have this enormous wealth of really special architecture from the 1870s and 1880s and a bit after that. Um, And then not a whole lot happened, you know, either between the wars or after World War Two, so we haven't lost it. So we have, in the same, like, Wharf Street, you've got architecture by John Smith Murdoch, by Carandini, by FDG Stanley. Where we are right now, the Bond store was built in 1864 to design by Charles Tiffin. So... It's really, if you're into architecture, it's a really, really special place.
1: I've never seen a survey, but you must have just about the largest intact sort of collection of buildings from that era of just about anywhere.
0: Yeah, just because the really special circumstances of being a major port, first of all, for gold and coal, but also um, we were a major... Um, immigration port so a very successful port with quite a lot of different types of buildings like warehouses and then because the city didn't really grow much you know for for quite a few decades the actual population went down so we didn't lose the buildings
1: it's a wonderful accident of history isn't it that you prospered at a time when people built great buildings yeah. and you weren't so prosperous at a time when people built frankly pretty ordinary buildings and, yeah we
3: and, hit a and yeah. tore them down to build those as mm. well so yeah very much south australian yeah, on both sides. Yeah, yeah, very much the South Australian is, we had the great uh, state bank disaster at the time when Melbourne and, um, or in particular Perth and Brisbane were ripping down all their heritage infrastructure and putting stuff up. I wanted to ask, um, just to contextualise for people where Maryborough is. So um, Fraser Coast and I also think we're going to have a conversation around the future of Maryborough, so I think how it relates to the land is important. So three hours from Brisbane, Harvey Bay is in this council area as well, um, that's Coastal. Fraser Island is is, is is a tourist mecca. Um, yeah, so what's, um, what's your description of the region and then how you think Maryborough fits into that? What, to, what type of city, if, if, if Maryborough had a personality, what type of personality would it be?
0: I think it would be um, fun-loving and um, intelligent and... But, but open to change. You know, we're three hours from Brisbane, so we're doing very well out of the drive tourism market. Right now in the pandemic, people can't fly overseas to Bali or elsewhere. So they're traveling in their own neighborhood. So Harvey Bay, Garry, Fraser Island and Maribor are doing very well for tourism. And we want to, we want to further um, take advantage of that. We want people to see us as a really unique destination like Hobart in terms of architecture and, and food and wine. I think um, there's enormous possibilities there. And into the future, we're returning to our manufacturing um, route. The very first locomotive was built here in Maribor and trains into the future are also going to be built here, as well as artillery, medical products, batteries and other products. So we're really taking forward with advanced manufacturing. I'd I'd really like to dive into that again because that's another fascinating part of the
1: story that I really wasn't aware of until we started talking to you and your council. Um, So Maribor post-goal rushes and things was built on manufacturing and it was a big manufacturing city and then it sort of went into a slump, I suppose, in the 80s on, and uh, now it's coming back in full force. So this is a COVID thing amongst others, isn't it? Yeah. So what are the factors that work there?
0: Um, well, so we built trains for a long time. Then, then we built ships on the Mary River. That ended after the 1974 flood, pretty much washed away the, the shipbuilding infrastructure. Um, and since then, we've, you know, we've dabbled in different things, still um, made trains. But um, I think we're starting to see a lot more localised manufacturing in Australia, and, you know, with support, particularly from the state and federal governments, we're bringing factories to town like rymatel Mattel um, Ammunitions. Armut- There's a
1: sort of a price advantage factor in here, isn't there? Because South East Queensland, the boom is on, industrial land is getting ho- hoovered up very quickly. And you're only three hours up the road, or if you're Comparing yourself with Moreton Bay or Sunshine Coast, one or two hours. There's another factor at work there, isn't it? You've got this wonderful flat land that's relatively well priced.
0: Yeah, we are a very good location for affordable housing and um, land. We're just north of the Sunshine Coast, um, so we're very central to to Brisbane and the major population. But we're outside of that really um, expensive area, and we've got lots of land for industry and, and commercial properties.
1: I'd like to dump, jump jump into a little bit to a personal story. Uh, like you, I know we, you told us Briefly earlier, how you came to be here, people will have noticed your um, North American accent, and so it 's a great story i think it 's sort of ticking the boxes that you were looking for
0: now it 's a mix of south African English, the um, American and Australian accent. Um, I came here right after university you know, I was you know I graduated from law and I was looking for jobs as a lawyer and the Fraser coast was perfect in terms of um, the right size town. You know, I finish work at 5 and I'm on the beach at 5.02. It's, um, you know, it's a great, it's a really great place to live. And and I think going forward, we're trying to make it more livable in terms of um, parks, um, art and cultural experiences.
3: Yeah, and that, that was what I wanted to explore. Um, I, I wanted to make reference to the grid system for a start, and, and, and we'll, we'll flesh this out more. Um, but it's a very permeable city, and it's got great architecture, um, but it's also got some amazing cultural assets, and I think that's, in terms of looking at what Maryborough is compared to potentially what Fraser, uh, what Harvey bay is or 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 and um, what Fraser Island is, or what the Sunshine Coast is. There's a real cultural element to this city, isn't there?
0: That's right. Yeah, we've got a very strong arts um, scene, and that's that and that utilises a lot of the old warehouses by the by the river. The grid system was would have been set out by the planner Hugh Lebat, because Maribor was actually originally settled a few kilometres north of the north along the river, and it was settled just in um, in an unplanned state. The, it's called the original Maribor site. It's an archaeological site now. Um, it's the only undisturbed pre-set, pre-survey settlement site in Australia and um, so but they were forced to the new site where we are now by the government at New South Wales because we were New South Wales at the time and the government set out this grid system and made the people move um, down river to because it's a better port site here that doesn't take as long to get up the river.
3: And we're in the bond store which is owned by the council but you've also got a whole range of um, cultural assets here um, so what give me some of the sort of things that people can come from the hinterland or even come up from Brisbane and to include in uh, an experience here in Maribyrnong.
0: So we own a lot of the buildings around the Portside Precinct, like the Customs House, which was designed by John Smith Murdoch, a famous architect. That's a museum. This is a museum. Uh, across the road is the Maribor Military and Colonial Museum, a private museum, but actually the best military museum outside of Canberra. Gadigar's Art Space is in an 1860s um, warehouse, and uh, that's our main art gallery here. So, there, and then there's a whole range of other uh, national. National Trust properties and other museums and um, walking tours and so, the big theatre, of course. Yeah, the, yeah, we got some very large um, old um, movie theaters and and the Brolga Theatre is our performing arts venue with about eight hundred seats. Mm-hmm.
1: And look, we can't talk about these things without talking another little special piece of your history is the, uh, the, build, the bank building up the road and who lived in there uh, back That's in right. the day.
0: Yeah, in August 1899, um, Travers Goff was the manager of that bank, which at the time I think would have been the Australian Joint Stock Bank um, or another bank. And anyway, what happened is people lived upstairs and downstairs were the premises there was a bank downstairs. And so in August 1899, he had a daughter, which was P.L. Travers, who would then write the Mary Poppins books and made into a movie, so we've tried to um, sort of turn that into a Mary Poppins experience for Mariborah uh, because it is one of the most beloved characters. Uh, my nineteen-month-old son loves the Mary Poppins movie and sings the songs, so um, it's a try. It's a way of. Um, you know trying to get a bit of magic into um, the city and the story bank which is the building which we bought and restored it's more than just a museum about Mary Poppins and Traverse it's about the art of storytelling about trying to encourage children to understand plot and characters and um, you know developing a story.
1: I, th- I think they've you've done some wonderful things with it too I mean the, actually the story bank mm. name is a fantastic number I don't know who thought of that but well done then and but also you've got the statue of course of Mary Poppins in the corner it reminds me of Mary Tullamore, if you ever been to uh, yeah yeah where is it um, Minneapolis yeah. yeah yeah but but the um, the traffic signals the mm. pedestrian traffic signals with the the, the instead of just the usual walking man type thing yeah, it's, it's it's Mary Poppins,
0: Poppins. yeah yeah it's, those are some of the most photographed places in Mariborah is the, the large um, statue of Mary Poppins people can stand next to her but also people love taking photographs of our walking signals with Mary Poppins yeah
1: such a clever small thing but well done
3: yeah no it's great now your worship I'm just going to say for the record George is laughing because as you um, most people wouldn't realize but when you're addressing a mayor you address them as your worship uh we went on a a, a workshop this morning uh, where and it was a great experience where, where we had Greg and I yourself, the CEO, um, a whole pile of councillors and a whole pile of staff. So we had about 25 people. Plus some community people. Community yeah. people. It was a really great experience. I'd be really interested to sort of see your take on what you got out of that in terms of the future Um, So it's not a test. It's actually more about us finding out what you liked and what you don't like so that we don't say the wrong thing. Um, But um, where do you see uh, Maraburra's future in terms of some of the things we talked about today and and what are your aspirations to to make the city even better than it is today?
0: Um, Well, it's about the CBD that we walked around. We want to make it into a people-friendly place. At the moment, you've got cars driving through and parking. And what we have here, what the cars are coming into is irreplaceable. You know, we don't have a historic village here. We don't have a recreation. We have an original piece of colonial Australia. Um, and that can be appreciated much more by foot and by bike than it did by car. We need to find a, a better way of making it people-friendly, uh, to get people in, enjoying the, the sites, the experiences and the stories, utilizing the different shops. Um, so I think that that's first on our list, is finding a way to increase the experience of being in the Maribyrnong CBD beyond that I think we need to find a way to get the buildings used.
3: I was going to ask you because you've got a passion for heritage infrastructure but of course there's some challenges there so talk, talk us through your vision and what you think some of the barriers are.
0: Yeah. Well um, the real risk to any historic building is for it to be vacant. Uh, the longer a building sits there without a use the higher the, the chance of, of a fire or um, severe you know some sort of deterioration that can't be undone and we need to make sure that the buildings in Maribor are used adaptively reused if if needed but reused um, wherever they can so we need to find ways to get people living upstairs because in many of these buildings even if there's a shop downstairs they might just be using upstairs for storage which aside from not helping so much that's, that's a shocking um, under utilisation of amazing asset um, if we can get more people living in the second story of Maribor, that will revitalize it, I think. So we're talking quite a bit with the state government. There are issues, I mean, um, you know, and a lot of them have to do with the building code. Um, and we don't want to have unsafe places, but we also need to make sure that they, they're used. And I think they'll be safer if people are living in them than if you leave, leave places open and vacant. So um, continuing to find ways. And it's something that everyone in, every town in Australia struggles with, trying to get old buildings um, used without having to spend a, a fortune.
1: So that was Mayor George Seymour, um, who's an interesting um, f- uh, fit for the region that he's the mayor of. He's a, a forty-year-old plus um, person from uh, with an American accent, grew up in uh, Western uh, America uh, in California. Me when I met him. Yeah, and uh, he's a really, um, you know, an interesting, funky sort of character. And uh, he, he, but he's really very popular. He, he romped in in the last elections up there, and he really has a commitment to fostering uh,
3: Mariborough to be the best version of itself and um, he's certainly very passionate not only about the city uh, but also about a whole range of things that we're going to talk about in particular the heritage the history of the city itself so Greg you're the Queenslander what do you know about Mariborough
1: well, maryborough has got an interesting hi- and uh, sort of varied history. It was a port originally. It was uh, it's on the Mary River, even though it's some distance from the sea. That was a bi- it's a big river. It's a deep water port. It had um, a lot of uh, people migrated into Queensland through that port back in the day. But and in more recent times, in the first half of the twentieth uh, century, it became a really big manufacturing centre. A business called Walker's uh, that's now uh, Downers was um, one of the primary sort of manufacturing uh, centres of the state. It made most of our rolling stock for our trains. It made ship components and parts of ship. It was a really big operation at stay and it had well over a thousand staff there in a town of you know probably at the time 20,000 so it was a very significant part of the history of Mariborough.
3: There's also an incredibly long list of of heritage listed buildings as well it's really yeah. substantial for a, a city its size.
1: It really is and and um, you know I think that uh, Mariborough I liked uh, to sort of think of it, 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 it blossomed and boomed when when uh, we built fantastic buildings, great buildings, and then it uh, had some hard times uh, where it wasn't as prosperous and it lost uh, some glamour to Harvey Bay when we didn't build such good buildings. So the result of that is it has this wonderful asset of this tremendous stock of um, heritage and uh, history uh, in its buildings and and um, the activities around the town.
3: Yeah, and also. Um, quite a handful of famous people come from um, Maryborough, which we won't get into in too much detail, because uh, we really want to chew into the urban planning stuff and and the future of the town. Um, I, I notice the name Grant Kenny, who, for those that are old enough, know that he was an I- Iron Man. And there's a couple of others, but there's one really, really super famous person who comes from Maryborough. I'll, I'll let you talk uh, to oh, that because okay. yeah. you're grandfather with the grand, granddaughter. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I have watched that a few times, I must say. But uh, So uh, P.L. Travers, which was actually uh, a nom de plume, uh, grew up in Mariborough at the top of a... Uh, up upstairs of one of the buildings downtown and she is well-known, of course, for writing the Mary Poppins books.
3: No, well, I was going to say there's a Mary Poppins statue. They've actually changed some of the street lights to have uh, the little green man is now the little green Mary Poppins, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, they've got a little bit of public art. They're certainly doing some good stuff. In that space, aren't they? They sure are.
1: They've got a museum there about Mary Poppins, and I love the touch with the street lights, uh, the, the pedestrian lights. It's just a wonderful piece, and they have a Mary Poppins Festival, I think, once a year in, in Mariborough. So, as, as, you, um, as you should. Uh, And and one of the people that we spoke to while we're in town is Greg Boldero, who is uh, the chair of the Local Tourism Authority. And he's a real full book on some of the history and uh, the colour of uh, Mariburra's past. So he had some interesting things to say. So why do people, what is it that brings people if they're you know, staying at Harvey Bay is it just the museums they come back for Is it, or do you think they come here for the heritage vibe and all that?
4: I, I'm pretty sure it is the heritage vibe but then the museums and the memorials and that that we've been building up over the past couple of years has really started to take off. The council spent a good amount of money on the Storybank building, the tribute to P.L. Travis and Mary Poppins. We've got Gallipoli to Armistice. I, we talked about the Military Museum. We're in the Bond store, and you have to bear in mind that, you know, 50 metres that way, 22,000 overseas settlers took their first steps on Australian soil.
1: Yeah, I mean, this place reeks of history, it doesn't it? It does, it, and, it and, does. And, uh, you know, I, I, as, I, as I've said last night, I, I've been to Mariborough a bit, but I've never got to know it in the depth that I know a lot of other... Uh, uh, Queensland cities and it's really got a lot going for it and and it's sort of like a hidden gem at the moment. Yes it is. Yeah so it's really about how do we unlock that isn't it?
4: And I think we have to be careful that we do it's imperative that we protect our heritage as well. Now, we've just had some announcements um, in the last couple of months about new industry opening up out at the industrial park and, and other places. There was a big announcement yesterday, yesterday about the medical facility, which will be another 150 jobs or whatever it is. But it's important that if, even if that's coming, then that we need to protect what we've got.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, I get you on that. But interestingly, the manufacturing is a big part of the history here too, isn't it? it? Is. So it's interesting that it's actually re- attracting it again. Yeah. Yeah. No. Do you reckon we'll get people back on bicycles riding into...
4: Riding... I hope so. I really hope so. And that was the big thing when I was at school. I know, four o'clock, there so many bicycles that the, the big industries down in the bottom end of Kent Street staggered their starting and stop times so that, you know, walkers blew their whistle and the blokes on bikes went at quarter to four and the others went at four o'clock and the others went at quarter past four. They used to come in a stream up Kent
3: Street.
1: That's how they used to manage congestion yeah. yes, back in was. the day, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's really
3: fascinating because, yeah. of course, it's such a car-orientated place now, but, of course, it's incredibly flat. Um, it's, you know, a grid system, so it's permeable and, um, and, and it's not a big city either. So whether it's a, a bicycle or an e-bicycle or, or even electric, sure. yeah, anything... Yeah. So, but it is a really accessible city for alternative transport, isn't it?
1: It does seem to be one of the big opportunities, Greg. Don't you? I,
3: I agree totally. Yeah. Um,
4: we talk. You talked last night about you know calming the inner city and get the cars out or get them you know a, a go slow zone through the centre of the city and and people go oh yeah want well, you know go slow zone I want to get well. You've, one street that way, you can go as fast as you... Well, not yeah. as fast as you like,
3: but yeah. you can obey the law. Well, for me, that, for me, that's pretty fast.
0: <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. About, just careful in, what you yeah, I'm about integrated go, right?
3: transport, but I don't <laughs> mind a fast car. But I certainly know yeah. what you mean. And, and also, I heard a story about someone who was saying they timed the, their drive down the main street of uh, of here, Adelaide Street, yeah. and they were complaining that it took them so long. But it's kind of like, why do you need to drive really fast right through the middle of the city what value does that add other than you saving about two seconds yeah. we
4: all have a bit of a laugh here when people say oh you know whew, I had to go to harvey bay to go to the seafood festival well it's you know, 35 minute drive if you're living in yeah. brisbane or, or sydney it's it's a you know an hour and a half drive to get there so it's you know but but um it's always been a bit of a joke it, it, and that's the way it is. I,
1: I've met a couple of people since we've been here that have never actually been out of Maryborough. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think that's... It's actually a testament to the, how how complete, you know, the community is and how people born here are c- still connected here. But it also tells you something about it's useful from, to, for, to get the ideas from outside and for people to go and experience other places, you know, so that they can see the potential that's right before their eyes here which probably when you've grown up with it you don't kind of look at it in it's that way. It's
4: very easy
3: to take for granted.
1: Yeah.
4: Is and, that, and, am I right with that? Uh, yeah. I, I just, yes most certainly and I think the other thing too is and, and we touched we touched on it a little bit before and I said that, that you know 22,000 22, free immigrants took their first steps on Australian soil just outside these doors but you multiply that out and they've come to Miraborough, this is where they've landed, this is where they've done their paperwork, then they've moved to Gympie, then they've moved to wherever, and moved to where. And then there's another generation that have moved out and moved. The influence of Miraborough, if you go back through your family history, is spread now right out, you know, across the eastern seaboard of australia
2: all
1: roads lead to meribu interestingly enough i posted something on social media and a a friend from brisbane said my my great grandfather was the first ever mayor of Maribor, you know so yeah yeah. so it's interesting it It it, is yeah that and and that's that's an interesting story too because if Maribor gets firing and you can actually help bring, bring your diaspora back to sort of experience it again that in itself is a tourism angle yes isn't it, it is it, it yeah. is yeah it is. fantastic so um if there were three big moves that you'd make um to get to get the town rolling you know what you know i'll just put you on the spot here greg you know maybe one or two but up to uh, three I,
4: I, one,
3: what, what's in your secret sauce
4: yeah my secret sauce is i want to see i want to see the shops in the cbd Occupied now. It doesn't necessarily have to be. And we talked a little bit last night about you know young entrepreneurs, and hey, that's a fantastic idea. But the council offices don't. The, the council offices do not need to be in one big building and have everyone under the one roof. They can have the finance department at this shop here, that you know the summit water over here, whatever it happens to be. Parks over there.
1: But but I mean your point is like, if you if you're pepper insulting, you know people who are working downtown, you've got people on the street.
4: Absolutely, and that's it's that. That's vital for business in the CBD. The other thing that I would love to see is I would love to see the the railway station... That beautiful railway station, which is in a sad, sad state of repair at the moment, but there's, some, there's something needs to be done with that so that there is now a link from Station Square, which is a major shopping centre, down into the main part of town, into yeah. the CBD. Yeah,
1: because they're not that far away. They really, aren't are that they? far away. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's, it's a
4: three-minute walk.
1: And it's a big part of your history, isn't it? I, I, you know, I went to school in primary school in the 60s. Greg, of probably similar age, you know, and and we all learnt, learnt the Sunlander, you know, the Brisbane, yes, Maribu, the... Brisbane, Gippsland, merri you know and yeah. yeah and so anyone who grew up in that area in Queensland knows where Merribor is because you had to know your Sunlander. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah and that's where they used to stop wasn't it?
4: It was. They used to they used to come in here and then they'd go out to battle and then they'd be on the big loop line and then they'd head north.
1: So we've got two of the three? Is there another one? Or is there a secret source for a simple one? No
4: which traffic calming I think is important yeah. and, and I'd get I'd open up trees, greenery, music, yeah. vibrancy in, in the in the C B D and, and it that will happen. And you touched on it last night as well um, and I'd love to see this happen and the Aloysius said last night that they're starting to stagger their opening hours and so on and so forth so that they're, they're The great, the great, great nine o'clock cafe that's in town now. Yeah. yeah. And hey, maybe the council should look at in two nights a week not opening the library until 10 o'clock in the morning and then let it stay open until eight o'clock half past eight at night time. Yeah. The museums, you know, it's, it's, why not? open them at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, let them go
3: through till 7.
1: And a bit of night lighting to make a feature yeah, in the yeah.
4: place.
3: Yeah, the, the markets, or the markets at the moment run like sort of um, yep. 8 in the morning till midday or yep. something like that, whereas sort of even just for a month trying... Uh, trying it, it out it makes sense in summer that they should be late. it's not a bad thing you know there's you know slip slop slap and all of that yeah, sort of stuff delightful. as well
1: yeah yeah oh well, that's wonderful there's three three great ideas and uh you know so it sounds like um things are happening here we've got the potential it's just now you know did you uh, the other point i made at the beginning is it it feels like now is the time merivore is the time is it, how I'm,
4: see, I'm seeing it more and more and more every single day Tied up with the museum over the road, I organised the school tours and the tour buses and so on and so forth coming for them. Take a trip down here of a Saturday afternoon, three years ago, and I know because I do a show in here called Tipples and Tails, you could fire a cannon down the street and you wouldn't yeah. hit anyone. Walk down here now, uh, any afternoon, and there's 15 20 couples walking around with cameras looking at this and we, you know they're tourists because they've got been to the visitor information center they've got their little tourist brochures in their hand and got whatever ask them a question they ask you a question and it just goes from there yeah. we're really starting to see it come back and the surprising a lot of that is with RVs um, with, with the RV friendly status that we've got in Mirrabat at the moment which yeah. has yeah. helped us in incredible yeah. yep And um, it's interesting to watch them on the memorial, on the Gallipoli to Armistice Memorial. There seems to be two waves of them every morning. There's the group that get out of bed and then make their coffee in their takeaway mug. And then they walk around the centre of the city and they walk through the memorial and then they go back. And then there's the other lot that get up, have their breakfast and then come and do it. So there's there's two waves come through. So it's, it's quite intriguing, actually.
3: Yeah, he certainly was a colourful character and took us on a great tour of the, uh, the Anzac Memorial and the War Memorial and the, the good work they've done. Uh, he was uh, had a lot of energy and a lot of passion, as did many, many other people, because we met a lot of people and I wanted to sort of give a quick rundown of what actually we had the privilege of doing. It's like, it's a dream job for an urbanist, isn't it really, Greg?
1: It really is. It was it was wonderful. I mean, as you say, we met so many people who are committed to the future of Mariborough It was wonderful. Yeah. So, so off you
3: go. All right, so we'll, well, you know, it's the coolest thing ever. You, you, you get into town on Wednesday afternoon, and the first thing you do is uh, have dinner with the, the deputy mayor and the, the CEO of Council, uh, and uh, and some of the uh, the, se- the senior planner. And so, opportunity just to start that conversation around what they're hoping to achieve, uh, how we're going to go about it, uh, what are some of the key issues, etc. Uh, next morning, we had breakfast uh, with the mayor and and several councillors, and that was that was really enjoyable. Um, I've mm-hmm. always thought i've always liked the saying mayors in their cities are like pets and their owners and so this this idea that of meeting a mayor means you start to get an insight into the city i think is a is a really useful exercise and, and, and he was very gracious in in, in hosting us for breakfast um,
1: yes we he gave us a lot of his time too and um and the councillors that we did meet then stephen were mainly the ones who represented the areas in and Mar- around mariborough so that was really good to get to know them and hear theirs take on things
3: yeah and and, and you know, without being ageist, um, there were some young councillors there. There were some very enthusiastic uh, councillors who were really keen to see change. So it, it's that sense that it was nice to be invited because they know they're ready to to sort of take on some transformative thinking. Um, the next little session was just a just a, uh, a general chin wag with the executive team uh, of Maryborough Council. So we've spent a bit of time just having a conversation with them about what's important, what some of the key issues, the things they've been doing recently versus the things that they've got on the books and, and also what they're thinking about. Uh, so we And that
1: was the actually the Fraser Coast Council, of course, but yes, yep. it was all the conversation was all
3: about Mariborough, wasn't it? Yep. And now I'm going to let you do the next bit. I, I'm just going to sort of say, this is kind of cool because I love the name, but uh, the next thing we did was a diagnostic workshop yeah it's um it sounds fancy doesn 't it diagnostic workshop but it really
1: was a wonderful um Opportunity to walk and talk. The council people had actually organised a bit of a route around the downtown because our focus really was about the downtown, um, and, and we had this opportunity to go through some of the heritage buildings. Some of which are standing in a state of state of disrepair. Some of which are getting some uh, TLC and and love and and talking to the people involved, talking to the people who know the history. We had just about the whole council. With us, um, the CEO, many of the senior people, um, and of course many community people, and that, that was just wonderful uh, to have that sort of. They were literally insights in that we went inside and had insights as well as the discussions along the way.
3: Yeah, well, there was also the the senior heritage planner. We had some building staff, we had uh, engineers, we had uh, urban planning staff, and it was it was brilliant because so many times it's funny, isn't it? The, the town hall is so often right in the middle of the city, but so many times we we have these conversations in offices and in the council chamber uh, rather than actually just standing on site, getting everyone together and starting to sort of nut out what some of the issues are and enthuse and and educate people. And there were some building owners that had a chance to sort of stand in front of the council and say, you know, the council's trying to help us facilitate activating this building, but then it serves a notice on us uh, regarding other issues. And that's not pointing the finger at this council because we're going to get into it but there's building code and building code and building code and the building code at national level, building code at state level and, of course, then it's got to be enforced at local level. So there's some real challenges around that that we'll, we'll flesh out a little bit further down the track. But it was a, gr- it was a great experience and it was...
1: Uh, I think the workshop was great and I think if we, if we do get the opportunity to do this sort of thing again, that would be a, a central part of anything we'd do in, in any other city, I reckon.
3: With your sort of age, wisdom and experience, Greg, and, and, and mine with being a former Lord Mayor. There's there's an opportunity to have a much more frank conversation. We're not really there as consultants to, to sort of win work. We're there uh, as a couple of ratbags who, uh, who are pretty passionate about uh, urbanism and urban transformation, and uh, and we had a, an incredible privilege to see. Uh, a unique cross-section of the city and, and speak to a whole pile of people. Nancy Bates was interesting, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, she was a real character and someone who is, um, you know, really um, central in, in in trying to get uh, the Miraburra's uh, future to be as good as it possibly can be. Interestingly, her and Greg that we heard from earlier were uh, both out of media, um, Nancy from the paper and Greg from the local radio, and uh, so they're really good advocates, I think. So, Nancy, um could you like to tell us who you are and why why you're involved?
2: Okay, I've been interested in the um Promoting the heritage of Murroughborough since the 1980s when it was first, we first looked around and said, Hey, some of these old buildings are pretty good, maybe we should do something with them. And from there, we've uh, gone. I was the editor of the paper here for 20 years, I've actually worked in the newspaper here for 40 years, but um, I became quite passionate about it. And when we got involved with the Mary Poppins promotion, I pushed that. Mary Poppins was not a blokey thing, so we had to really go all out to convince guys. That that it wasn't just about petticoats and nice old ladies. It was very much about a, a, a hardcore commercial angle to an opportunity to um, promote Mirabara Connected with one of the best-known brands in the world, you know, Mary Poppins. So that's where we came from. And um, then we took it a little further and um, we built the Gallipoli armistice after I retired... Um, uh, we did the Gallipoli Armistice Memorial, which fits in very well with the heritage side of things, looking at World War One.
1: So you've done a lot of thinking about how you might sort of go about this, and structurally about what components of the local community and, and initiatives. Um, you could sort of bring to the future of Did Would you like to run us through some of your quick thinking on, on that?
2: Sure. I've been um, looking at the, the whole of Maribor and how, how to do it, as I said, for quite a few decades now, actually. So what we've done is we've come up incorporated status that we can use to harness the enthusiasm of people in the community who love their city. The community spirit in Miraburra is absolutely fantastic. People are quite passionate about it. But I know that these days... People don't have the time to go and sit in at long meetings and listen to long things they're not particularly that interested in, but they do want to contribute. So we're creating a a a really nimble way they can slot in to whatever their passion is, what they'd like to be involved in, what they'd like to achieve, and their their little... Well, we're calling them pods for the want of anything better, even though Harvey Bay's got the whales, we've got the pods, so... Well, it, um, sounds,
1: it seems seems appropriate. It, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: So and that that seems to be working quite well. We've got an awful lot of enthusiasm with it. We've created a corner under here for all the Mary Poppins activities, and there's a lot more promotion to be done in that, We've got a corner uh, looking at tourism, but not tourism on on the high end. We're looking at community tourism. What can I do to help with yep. tourism rather than the um, more high The big, yep.
3: the yep. big traders. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah, looking at social media, probably going to create some fun little videos about what to come and see in in Marlborough. They might be a bit cheeky. We can get away with that. Well, Perhaps we can't get away like with the, that in yeah, other places, you know. but the community can do things and get away
1: with it. <laughs> we like it. cheeky, don't we, Stephen? Oh, I don't mind yeah. a
3: bit of cheek. Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, – that's one of the things we've we've got educational vocation training looking at things like we'd like an acting college here we're also looking at trying to um, create a something more with the music industry. We would like Miraborough to become very much a city of live music and we as you know we've got the royal hotel being restored, and the aim of that is to make it a big music live music venue in Miraborough so that'll be cool and then we've got cityscape solution, which is very much along the lines of what you guys have been talking about today and uh, touching on things like traffic calming so you can sit out on the footpath and have a coffee without yelling or waiting until somebody drives past and one of the things that I was interested in too that we came up and you mentioned it is creating a city um, for carless living and that ties in with one of our other projects that we're doing which is uh, we're having a fantastic railway station built out on uh, Miraborough West on the line. And um, when I was talking to our state member, Bruce Saunders, about that, he said, oh, it's going to be terrific. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I said, OK. So can we have a couple of pot plants in there too, do you think? And he said, yeah, I'm sure we can do that. And then I said, hey, how about we get a little group together uh, people who love gardens, pot plants, all these sort of things and make it that the whole station is the best station in Queensland when you go up there. And so if you pull in at Mirabra West, guess what you've got? This fantastic um, live chalking garden... Theme, and perhaps QRL could even do something like play a spoonful of sugar as it comes into the station or something. You know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> this is a lady with
2: this ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so the city, you know, the, the, the
1: you know the, let's talk into your um cityscape um, um, solutions, you know. So there's a few things you mentioned, the car, you know, the carless or car light is another way of thinking about it, you know, yep. a car light diet, you yep. know, where you don't there's I you know, as you know I say, like it's okay to have be able to use a car but if that's the only option you're giving people then you're not building a complete community transport but choice. transport choice but yeah. what else what else was there that we that you know out of the workshop this morning that you sort of took away that you thought yes that's what I'm talking about or
2: okay well um, yeah, with the um, carless car light solution there of course when it, we've got all this upper, Upper level living around the Mirabra commercial area, where um, people can live upstairs and use the bottom part. They cannot use it for various things but they've got a street front as well as their um private accommodation upstairs and some of the upstairs living quarters that have been built and around Mirabara are absolutely spectacularly you, know, you see movies where they've got the apartments in New York with these wonderful windows looking out and the or, yeah and great big windows and when you uh, go upstairs in some of these places in Mirabara that's that's what's there There's This is fantastic windows and
1: so unlocking that potential is one of the things isn't it that that would be a wonderful thing for the town
2: yes and one of the things that we talked about this morning that I thought was really important too was the need to rethink regulations and be able to amend them bend them be flexible rather than now it's just pretty real hard black and white down the line the law says this you've got to say well does the law want to be a living building or not so
3: creating a culture of finding solutions rather than finding problems
2: exactly and
3: facilitating not just regulating
2: music to my ears guys (laughs) music (laughs) to my ears and (laughs) i think um a few ears pricked up when we walked around with that because it's something we've been trying very hard to do
1: like many of the regional cities around Australia, Baraburra City, the, the traditional city in the downtown, has this wonderful grid. It's a really solid basis for any the operation of any city. And, and because of the topography, back in the day when Walkers was at its peak, most of the people walk, working down there travelled by bike and, of course, the grid was ideal for that And they to the point where they had to have three separate finishing times in the afternoon so that the streets weren't clogged with the bicycles coming out of that facility, so it just shows you some of the things that uh, might be possible again in the
3: future yeah it's fascinating because of course bikes are always seem to bubble up as an issue for any city that wants to create an integrated transport system, uh, but we had the locals telling the historical story of how many people were cyclists in this city. It was a thing it was a big industrial center with manufacturing uh, a lot of workers um, at a time when it was the scale of a city where you just wouldn't drive. To work, and it was a it was a huge thing. Uh, the, I guess the uh, and that goes back then also to the fact that it is a historical centre, and there's a lot of museums and cultural infrastructure that that makes Maryborough unique in itself. Certainly compared to Harvey Bay, and, and a critical stop on a on a road trip north of Brisbane. Yeah. Oh yeah, had a wonderful the Brolga
1: Theatre where we did the last session with the council staff, it's a wonderful thing. The Anzac Memorial is is much more than just a memorial. It walks, it talks it sort of it's got a wonderful wonderful and moving story to tell through the effectively the eyes of uh, one of the people uh, from Maribara who was instrumental in the first landings at Gallipoli. Um, it's a, it's a tremendously moving um, uh, experience. So it has got so many wonderful things uh, going for from there in that cultural space.
3: Yeah, and I think that's really important, as well as some museums and, and the heritage infrastructure. There's one corner that's got four state heritage uh, buildings on it, which is is quite spectacular, down, down near the riverfront. And we actually haven't also mentioned the importance of the riverfront. Uh, uh, historically, um, towns like this or cities like this turn their back on them. They used to be the sort of, like, the sewerage pipe. Uh, and, and there's still a little bit of work to do there, but it's it's surrounded by, by the Mary River, which is... Uh, has some significant opportunities. But the cultural infrastructure is really important because it really does make it sort of an arts, cultural, heritage, historical, and there's some really important decisions that council can make if they choose to make it that kind of city. And I think this is the first stop on the the cab of what's the difference between Harvey Bay and Maryborough. Uh, and, and one is that Maryborough is going to be that coastal, um, relaxing, holiday-maker kind of thing. It's the next stop up from the Sunshine Coast and Noosa, uh, whereas Maryborough is going to provide... Uh, Still for tourism, uh, but not for the sort of sitting on your balcony watching the waves kind of tourism. We're talking about the the education. We're talking about the culture. We're talking about the value adding. Um, You know, if you're going to have you know bands come to town, a live music festival. um, If you're going to encourage museums, you know, if you're going to have one big library, maybe maybe. Put it in the in in Maryborough rather than Harvey Bay. It's it's about that difference between I don't know Melbourne and Sydney, or a uh, a surfer dude and a uh, an an artsy guy, or a surfer dude and an artsy girl, or, or whatever it is. Would you say that's fair?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think you're really just putting your finger on one of the big ideas that you know came into our focus. You know, from the experience we had there, that that is something that uh, really could um, help uh, the Fraser Coast Council understand the roles and, and focus on the role of Merribara in a way that will actually differentiate it as a place not only within Fraser Coast, but more generally in Queensland. So I think you're spot on. The other thing that was in amongst, uh, you know, that we noticed just getting back to the manufacturing side of things too, Stephen, was that manufacturing is actually making something of a comeback in, in Maryborough. It's um, the wa- the former walkers now, now uh, down our site has uh, secured big new contracts to uh, service and I think construct some of the rolling stock for... Queensland Rail, they've got a big new investment coming which was actually announced I think while we were in town of about 150 jobs in a medical mm-hmm. type uh, facility that's going into the old TAFE site they've had a real upswing in people looking to buy industrial land in Maryborough because there has been the COVID inspired sort of stampede to um, to soak up um, industry land in southeast Queensland and the, the land in Maryborough is both flat and well priced compared to South queensland so there's some really interesting things going on there which are sort of a combination of its history and uh, and not only in terms of the culture and, and the buildings but uh, in terms of its traditional manufacturing focus
3: yeah and what that means is that there's uh, whilst there's been sort of sort of significant evolution over a period uh in a in a sort of post-COVID modern world where supply chains are going back local and that we're rethinking urbanism and that people are starting to move out of some of the big cities. They're certainly seeing some significant uh, population growth in Maryborough. Uh, And so we were invited, essentially, because... um, it's it it feels like and they're openly saying it it's a city in need of a of a new vision a, a clearly articulated vision isn't that right greg
1: that's right and i think that was something that uh, jared carlyle and the, the head of uh, planning etc at, at the council had a really good um, sort of take on so we should have a listen to what he's had to say about it
5: I, I think it's, um, you know, and it's not, it's not a unique challenge to Maryborough, but it's, it's about how do you celebrate your history, acknowledge your history, but also take that forward in a really authentic way. And, and um, you know, I think all of the great cities of, of the world, um, you know, are constantly reinventing themselves and not throwing away any of the past, but, you know, keeping the best parts of the past and looking for ways to, to use that history um, to create a, a really vibrant future. Jared, why did you get City Speak Australia to come to Maryborough? I, I suppose for me, um, you know, one, one of the things that I often think about is that if you if you hear great ideas, you should capitalise on them. And, you know, that old saying that, um, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. So having listened to all of the episodes of, of your podcast, I, I was just really inspired by a whole range of the things that you were talking about. And I thought that sharing some of those messages with our local community, you know, might uplift people, might get people to um, have a broader horizon or think about things they hadn't considered before for, you know, for me personally, and this is not um, blowing smoke, but I was inspired by some of the messages in your podcast and so I often think um, you know if something's inspiring me then it might inspire others as well and
1: so you know taking that what, what are the opportunities to inspire here in this place and what do you think you'd like to get out of our involvement here?
5: Um, so I think some of it is you know and again I suppose leveraging your audience and your growing audience is about sharing our story with a, with a wider audience so you know I listen to, to some of the stories that the you had about other cities and thought oh that 's interesting, I need to go and check that out um, so some of it 's about telling our story the the great things that already exist in in terms of our story the the history, the beautiful museums, the great art and culture that we have here in in, in and then some of it 's about you know, leveraging that and trying to you know pick your brains and, and share with our locals the um, the great things that you've seen in other places, and trying to get that organic you know melding of the minds, so that people can see well, we've got all this great infrastructure, but if we just tweaked it a little bit here, or if we threw in a little bit of that, you know, two and two doesn't necessarily equal four. We 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 might end up with six or eight um, if we can just do things a little bit differently.
3: Yeah, and I, I still can't believe I've, I get the opportunity to do this. But I wanted uh, you to sort of uh, reflect on the the walk shop that we did. So, uh, just for context, we we went for a walk for three hours today around the town centre, and we had the mayor, the CEO, uh, all the directors of council, and numerous councillors, members of the community, uh, some stakeholders, chamber of head of chamber of commerce, and we had a really constructive conversation where pretty much everyone was agreeing with each other. So what 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 did you get out of today's conversation that you think... Um, has some real potential uh, in terms of taking forward uh, some ideas and and some inspiration and and a collective
5: vision. And that's what we, I think this is what this is going to be really about. Yeah, and I I love that term, uh, collective vision, because one of the things that was really powerful for me this morning is that um, all of the key stakeholders were walking around, uh, learning from each other, sharing with each other, um, being open to, you know, different ideas, hearing things that was sometimes a little bit challenging because sometimes you, you you need to be challenged and so I think it was it was really powerful to to have everyone you know I was going to say around the table but we were around the, the footpaths and, and looking at all of the different buildings um, and, and just hearing each other you know genuinely listening to each other um, hearing other people's perspectives and I think that you know it'll have a long tail some of those discussions you know it, it might be things that we do next week or next month or in the next couple of months but I think you know we've started a discussion discussion that you know could have a tale that goes for years in terms of you know creating a, a bright future for miriburra what are some of the key things like we stood in some
3: absolutely amazing upstairs um heritage buildings you know there were spaces that could have been div- divided into six apartments they were huge what did, what did we see today and and what are some of the things that you think um you could get across the line that you've been really struggling with or what are some of the things that you want to really try to achieve by getting everyone to work together
5: I think some of it's around that, incentivising, um, you know, h- how do we give those historical buildings a, you know, a future life? Um, and that might be that we pick off one or two and try and get, it. you know, an apartment development, or it might be that we, um, you know, try and get it... I was in, in one of those upstairs bu- buildings today thinking, oh... Could it could it be a uh, an ice skating ring or a roller skating it ring? It was or, big enough. Um, yeah, yeah so magnificent. Yeah, the, the spaces are just mag- magnificent, and you know, even just some of those you know organic materials. I you know looking at the the pressed metal ceilings and just the the design of some of that historical stuff is it's really beautiful. Um, a lot of it's hidden away though, so I'm really keen for us to find ways to you know you can't solve every challenge straight away but if we can pick a couple off and do you know a couple of really good demonstration projects um we had some of the you know developers um with us today who were already trying to take forward you know some of those um like ivan from the the, the royal hotel so if we can encourage that if we can incentivize that um if we can get some more wins on the board um i often think that you know those things they have they have a way of you know um just building on themselves once once people see it um they they start to believe it and, and they might have a go themselves.
1: They, they taste it, touch it, feel it themselves. You know that that one of the mantra of uh, local economic development is do something small, soon and successful. You know, so that if you can get some of that going, and and that's how, that's of course inside the building, but it's also what you're doing on the street.
3: Yeah, definitely. Tell us about the importance you think of having, and we 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 use the term shared vision. Uh, what the importance of of having a vision for the uh, for the city itself?
5: Your thoughts? You know, and I think this is probably relevant for all reg- regional economies. Is um, you know, the dollar only goes so far. So you've really got to be, um, you know, laser focused in terms of what are you what you're trying to achieve. And so that vision piece in terms of. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you can't be flexible and you, you, you can't try different things, but you've got to be able to tie them back to something. You've got to know where you're going, what you're trying to achieve, you know, where you want to be in two years and five years and, and, and ten years. And that vision piece, um, you know, particularly in a, in a place with such a rich history like this, to for, for everyone to be, you know, focused on what the end goal is, um, I, just, I just think... Means that the, the decisions you make um, are more likely to be successful and more likely to take you towards that goal.
1: I think a powerful vision too helps align everyone, you know, so that, and from the alignment comes, you know, energy and creativity. But what do you need to do within an organisation like the council to achieve that? You know, there are some challenges, aren't there, in terms of regulation versus facilitation and so on. You know, would you like to comment on that? Yes,
5: yeah, so I think, um, you know, having, having a, a large team myself of, you know, 400-odd staff, it's it's really about empowering people, letting people um, try new things, letting people make mistakes, um, in, encouraging, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit within, within you know, the local government employees, which is not always common. And, you know, often you, you might have staff who have spent 20 or 30 years being indoctrinated that, you know, in, in a rules-based approach. And, um, you know, rules exist for, for good reasons, but we want to make sure that... Um, You know, our regulatory approach isn't getting in the way of good ideas. Um, You know, obviously, you don't want to do things that are unsafe or that put people at risk, but you do want people to have a go. You want to encourage people to have a go. You want your staff to be on the journey with people. That shared vision. You know, if if um, you know a local entrepreneur wants to start up a new business and have a go at something um we we shouldn't be putting any roadblocks in their in their path we should be patting them on the back and saying um how do we help you know how do how how do we help you get over the line the council's here to help definitely yeah, so Jared was our,
3: uh, our host. Um, he was a great guy and he's certainly really passionate. I, I, I liked the, the quick trip we got in the, uh, in the Tesla, although we didn't get a chance to uh, give it a, a decent belt, unfortunately. But it was, it was nice riding through the city in Jared's Tesla regardless. But uh, in terms of the vision, I guess most importantly for those people that are from Maryborough or, or who can influence Maryborough and who are kind enough to take the time to listen to this podcast, we really wanted to start with a little bit of a, a I don't know, a, a warning label, uh, which is that we do want to throw some ideas around, but I think most importantly we, we think it's really about an holistic approach that's going to facilitate a greater change in how the city is perceived, used, uh, activated uh, and its economy and its social issues. Um, big, big sentence. All I'm trying to say is we're going to throw a couple of uh, bunch of ideas out here. Don't necessarily just sort of pick one or two. It's really about how the city... Uh, gets a whole pile of co-creation done, does a whole range of things to see change accelerate more quickly than if you just put trees in or you just widen the footpaths or you just put in bicycle lanes. do uh, you got some thoughts on that, Greg?
1: Yeah, oh, you know, I'm absolutely on board with that, Stephen. You know that, that this is not a matter of picking and choosing. It is a matter of actually understanding what you do first and second, but it's part of a coordinated program. And uh, so I think that's that's definitely the way that this is best going to work if uh, if the council and the community co-create a vision and uh, and how they they would bring that vision to life in downtown Mariborough.
3: Yeah, and probably the the biggest initial challenge they have is is actually not that dis similar to Adelaide. On a side note, Brisbane as a CBD is quite dense because it's surrounded by a river and and it's contained. Sydney, Sydney to a certain extent, is the same. Yep. Uh, whereas Adelaide and, um, and Maryborough uh, both have the same issue in the sense that they've got these very large downtown grid-like designs that actually struggle to see intensity-focused in a particular place and you get sort of... I guess, development spread out all over the place. You've got a main street. You've got a little bit of a hustle and bustle in the middle, um, but then you go sort of straight to mixed-use development, mixed activities, uh, light industrial activities, um, all of which don't necessarily add up to a a thumping, pumping, vibrant uh, downtown centre that actually supports, you know, a broader population in the region of, you know, what, over 100,000?
1: Yeah. No, it's a, it's a top point, um, Stephen. You know, the, while we pointed to the grid as one of the great assets of the city, the risk of the grid at the moment for where Maribur is, is that it's too big for to create the energy you need to have a really sort of um, successful downtown. So, so the idea of starting somewhere in the most logical location for some of the things that we'll talk about and then starting to work out from there is probably a pretty sensible way to approach this.
3: The CEO re really, really got on top of this and, uh, and had some interesting comments to say about it.
6: When you look at um, the size, the age, the character of Mirabara CBD, it's a reflection of the wealth in the late 1800s to early 1900s. We're not that community anymore. And we've moved on and the CBD isn't serving our needs. My concern as a community, when we talk about let's save the CBD, let's revitalise the CBD, is what is the CBD? And I don't believe the CBD of 2021 or 2025 or 2030 is the same CBD that we colloquially refer to in Maryborough now. I think it has to be much smaller. I think there has to be a, a core nucleus that we focus on as a council to say that's what we believe is the best value for our investment and we need to make investment and that's where we should be putting our resources that that's where we should be adding value in terms of amenity that's where we should be digging into our pockets as a local government to invest into into the CBD now we've been talking as as a council about how we do that and recently with one particular development one of our most you know, loved iconic buildings in Maryborough, we've backed ourselves by and backed the developer by waiving rates. So we've waived rates for a significant period of time. Now, I would like us to to identify a core area and say that's where we're going to put our focus. If you develop your buildings, we will waive rates. We may even make investment over and above what we currently provide. We will, when we're looking at doing streetscape works or amenity works, we will put them in that region and start focusing on a core nucleus and then slowly, gradually building out if the demand for that development is there.
3: Yeah, there's an organic growth process. And I like the term great streets make great cities. And,
6: we mm. talk- and, and great streets make great cities. But if you have great streets and that's all you have, and you've got aged buildings and no... Support. No way to work through the you know the the issues with the building code and the fire regulations. Mm-hmm. You will just have great streets, mm-hmm. and you won't have a great city. And so this part of this exercise was wo- working out how we can have great streets and the things that are behind the streets, great the buildings. streets and great places. Yeah. Exactly.
3: The flip side of of having a big downtown precinct is this idea of great streets make great cities or great blocks make great you know building blocks make great cities you've also got to take on it the the idea that you do a lot of things in a small given area where you mobilize the community the small businesses the building owners the planning staff the all the different types of staff the elected members state government potentially federal government maybe um, industry a whole range of things this is this is an idea that we sort of pushed pretty hard while we were there
1: yeah, I think you know the, the other thing we didn't actually mention was that you know there is a need to build a new council office in the city somewhere. So, wow, wouldn't that be a tremendous infusion of um, of people and activity by putting that in the right place too? So, but that idea of yeah, like putting all of the ingredients together in a focused way. Uh, and get something that's really successful. I think part of that is to work with the building owners in the pick a place where the building owners are up for it uh, and really get, get that working well.
3: Yeah, and I guess this goes back to um, I call it cultural imperialism, you call it the seagull mentality, so it's a good time to introduce that. We really must stress that not only when we do this when we've done this podcast and this work but also with other jobs, it's really important that you just don't turn up to a town, let's just say like Maryborough and say you should do this, you should do this, you should do this because it's all about their local uh, community, it's all about inspiring and motivating them, they are the world experts on Maryborough but also it's just not cool to turn up, tell them what you should do and then just nick off, is it?
1: That's right, that's the seagulls thing, you know, you fly in um, do your business all over the city and fly out again, uh, but I think what we are trying to do here is to stimulate some thinking, put some ideas forward identify some opportunities and some thoughts about how you may go about that and that's what I think that's our role here is to help facilitate this process uh, and and broaden the thinking about how you might go about it, so hopefully uh, my sense was that That was pretty effective on the day, and I hope, or the time we were there, and I hope this uh, podcast will help uh, build on that.
3: Yeah, and so instead of actually us getting out a map and defining uh, which part of the downtown or CBD you draw a line on, we have really encourage uh, both the, the the elected members, the, the community, and, and the council to, to sort of make that decision because they need to decide on how big it's going to be, uh, whether it's just Adelaide Street, which is the, the main shopping strip, or, or whether it's further down to the river where there's a whole pile of great heritage assets. That's really up For to a long, them. A long- Kent Street you know Ken there Street were a few options
1: weren't there so so I think I think that's right Stephen I I think that's really for them to sort of get their heads around to sort of think well where you know how where is the best place to start and I think the other thing that we want to be clear about here is that there has actually been a lot of money spent in Mariborough over the last uh, five to ten years on redoing footpaths and um, having done fortunately to pull out some trees that weren't successful and put some new ones in but all that's really happened there is they've reinstated um, the status quo, and I think this is not about just you know physical improvements to the street and how it looks, but it's much deeper
3: than that, isn't it? And it is. And so, what we we thought we could do um, is is make a sort of suggestion of a series of, I guess, non-linear but connected things. So, if you if the council and the community all want to see some rapid transformation, um, and they get out a map and they decide which streets it's going to be, or they go for another workshop uh, and they just which streets it's going to do. There's a whole range of things that they could do to start to see visible change in that precinct and grow a sense of, of evolution, grow a sense of change, grow a sense of collaboration. Uh, that, you know, the computer says, yes, people are here to find solutions, not find problems, all of those sorts of things. And so yep. i have got a bit of a list. And I think uh, one of the really big ones uh, is this sort of activation of heritage buildings.
1: Yeah, it really is an issue, isn't it? that that, that you're trying to apply modern-day building codes and standards to buildings that were built a century ago. And, uh, of course, this is um, something that's really difficult for the people charged uh, professionally with enforcing those codes. There needs to be a way through this to help bring those buildings to be a key part of the future of Meribah, just as they have been a key part of its past and its DNA. And uh, the CEO had uh, quite a bit to say about that, which was of interest?
6: I think that's the thing that struck me is that um, when we come to looking at restoring old buildings, the council often gets the blame for being a roadblock. And that's not always the case. Within the council, I think we need to bring about a cultural change. So we're given the responsibility to ensure that. Building and refurbishment complies with the building code. And I think the culture in our organisation is a little bit risk-averse, and, and in local governments generally throughout Australia, we're, we're naturally risk-averse. And so we take that role very seriously. So we, we take on the, the mantle or the, the persona of a regulator, whereas perhaps we should be more focused on being facilitators or enablers of development, and I think we'd get a much better outcome for the development and for our community.
3: It's also about the
6: image of the council
3: too. It's really about whether the council has a reputation for saying no or whether the council has a reputation for saying um, yes, or even maybe, let's explore the
6: solutions. Yeah, that's right. So when the, when the council's building certifiers go out and building inspectors go out on site, they're following codes and regulations that they haven't set. They've been set, they're either a national code or a state code. They're not codes that, is, that the local government has set, So, but they have a responsibility to enforce those codes. And I think sometimes uh, when we're doing those inspections, we, if we identify uh, a non-compliance, or a potential non-compliance, we need to be able to give advice on how you'd be able to what methods you could use to bring that, that issue into compliance. I think there's also... We talked today about the state of our buildings and the age of our buildings, and a lot of our buildings were built well before any building code ever existed. And to now require those buildings to be brought up to a modern building code is just totally unreasonable. And if that's the objective that we are set to achieve we will not see development. We will not see these historic buildings in maribara or any other regional city be developed because it's just not practicable, it's not reasonable and it's not cost-effective. So we need to find innovative ways of achieving substantial compliance in relation to these refurbishment works to make sure we activate these buildings. I'd prefer to have a building that's 75% compliant and active and preserved than have a building that is 100% non-compliant, vacant and decaying.
1: The the thing you said I'd, I'd like to get back to is that bit about not just identifying the problems, but helping move towards the solutions as the mindset, the cultural piece that you mentioned.
6: Yes. And, and so we're doing some work on that already. So as part of our heritage grants, and we have a, a heritage planning officer, people that are looking at restoring heritage buildings or even character buildings, because there's a lot of buildings in our, our CBD and in our region that are on the state heritage register, they're not on the local heritage register, but they provide significant character um, and are part of, the, you know, they're part of the character and fabric of Mariborra CBD. So, as part of our grants program, we provide grants to provide, to uh, go and get reports, to get advice from heritage specialists, and also undertake some work. So, that's one aspect where we, we have a service to try and facilitate. But I think the one we need to focus on is that cultural change about less regulation, more facilitation enabling, looking for innovative ways to find solutions for developers.
3: Yeah, and the biggest issue, of course, is that this is uh, national code. Uh, This is often state code, uh, and it's often incredibly black and white. So, you know, if you don't do, if if you don't have a a stair that's up to code, or you don't have a a rear access that's up to code, or fire safety, it's incredibly difficult for a building inspector to sort of just kind of like go oh don't worry about it, mate, you'll be right, because there are significant implications. But that said, you know, once again, Adelaide has uh, many of these same challenges, two- or three-storey buildings, a lot of uh, upper-storey activation. Uh, And and I said it a few times, it's amazing what you can do with a piece of gaffer tape or or a roll of gaffer tape. And it's just a metaphor that really is about how do you find solutions quickly, easily, cheaply, so that you can start to tick some of these boxes and, and get people, you know, doing studios upstairs, living upstairs. Most of the upper storey buildings in downtown Maryborough are empty. So we are talking about huge opportunity for population increase for diversity. And a lot of this in terms of the, the, the MacGyver and the gaffer tape stuff, from from experience, most of the people that are on the tour in their sort of 40s or 50s, we all look at it from our own perspective but the thing is, we, this is also a really good uh, example of what, you know, I talk about entrepreneurial ecosystem. The fact that young people actually don't necessarily want gold-gilded, expensive, high-quality fire safety walls. They actually do like gaffer tape. They do like um, sitting on a milk crate. Um, they they want to create edgy, second-hand furniture places that they can reinvent the CBD and they want low costs so that they can create their businesses, you know, would you rather someone invest their first $20,000 in a car or or a company that could potentially put, you know, uh, create jobs and and give them a career and and set them on their way? So there's a whole lot of... Yeah, that's right activation stuff that that's around that some of the places would be uh, great for administration um i won't mention council offices because we don't really want to throw a fly in that ointment mind you there are some green shoots
1: aren't there in, 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 that we did see on the workshop that there are some upper floors that have been converted to housing there's some being used so th- there's a start of something here but it's still got a long way to run if they really want to use the potential that they've got in this wonderful stock of buildings.
3: And it really is also about not just getting people to come to downtown Maryborough, but actually getting people to work in downtown Maryborough, getting people to live down there. We're, we're always so obsessed, and we'll get to this a bit later, but uh, about, you know, if we build more car parks, more people will come to town. Um but actually, if we build more housing and and have a population downtown, you're getting that base base load that's actually going to support the businesses and support the vibrancy. All that stuff, yep.
1: So let's move on to the culture of creativity that you touched on there and the yep. activation and experimentation. There's a whole piece around this, isn't it? I like to think of it as the sort of software of the city as opposed to the hardware of what you do with the actual uh, engineering of the streets and so on.
3: And a big part of this, it's not always easy, but a big part of this is potentially council actually being a curator not only of activities and and events and things to climb on and and placemaking and temporary infrastructure which we can go back to um, but also a council that's going to focus on the types of land uses that you would have there. So make sure that there's enough restaurants, make sure there's enough cafes and start to also have a conversation around the nighttime economy as well. One of the the big things that I find really interesting about the nighttime economy is is that people in a lot of cities, bigger cities as well as sort of smaller cities walk out the door at 5:30 and notice that there's nothing to do, so they go home. And then, of course, they don't yep. want to go back out again. And, of course, even at 5 or 6 o'clock, the only thing to do, or 6, 6.30, the only thing to do often in these uh, places involves alcohol. And so what can we do to extend the vibrancy of the downtown, the council in itself can look at its uh, its library, its you know museum, the art galleries. What sort of program can can you do at, at the theatre? Um, what sort of other activities? There is isn't a whole range of things to do um, if you've just finished uh, high school, for example. And we talked to some yep. of the younger people at the at the event, uh, and so they've got some great assets. They just don't necessarily. Uh, haven't really got this night time economy there isn't even there isn't a single nightclub for example in in Maryborough
1: yeah and uh, you know we saw their very successful market that they have in Adelaide Street um, while we were there and uh, I think it was yours sort of idea that well maybe they could run that instead of from eight to twelve in the morning from four to eight in the evening give that a trial you know just there's a whole lot of things that you can bring to bear I think one of the things that we also um, identified and I think the council were onto it is you know some of the things that a council can do are financial levers aren't they you know so yeah. what can they do there to Encourage and facilitate some of the reuse opportunities for the the creation of um, spaces for people for places things to happen festivals you know all that sort of stuff so there's a like whole
3: co-creation stuff around joint funding that's right it's yep. really about how one of the biggest issues is that the communities will always say to councils you need to fix this you need to fix this you need to fix this so this yep. idea of a big community in a smaller council where the councillor is the facilitator and the enabler. Uh, Also with the heritage buildings, you know, the building plant staff, the planning staff, sort of having those conversations around with landowners or, or or applicants for land uses. Um, how can we help? What are the solutions? What 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 are the workarounds? We, we want to help you make this happen. Um, but, of course, then council can also invest uh, in its own infrastructure as well, especially if it designates that specific space in a city that they want to see significant change. We haven't mentioned placemaking or, or parklets. Um,
1: there are actually a couple of parklets in town now, outside cafes, and we had a coffee uh, outside one, and we made a very entertaining three-second video, didn't we? Yeah, um, but, it was um,
3: informative. It said, it, <laughs> this is a
6: parklet.
1: <laughs> yeah, we pointed out it and said parklet. But um, it was a nice place. And, you, know, you the whole parklet thing, for people who don't know, is just taking one car park and turning it into effectively a little area of a park so that people can sit there. And um, the evidence shows where this has been done, the value of that one parklet is many times the value of the one car parked there during the course of the day. So they are actually got a really significant financial uh, benefit as well. Just another way of a- activation for making people places, for sort of just changing things up and sending signals to
3: say, we're doing things differently here. Yeah. And from recollection, the parklet uh, at any one time that we saw it had about five or six people sitting in it, it had a whole pile of seating, it had uh, landscaping. It's a piece of infrastructure that you could pick up with a forklift and move it if it doesn't work uh, in yeah. situ uh, but also more importantly if it does work you can then start the process of planning the permanent piece of infrastructure that you change the drainage table and then put out the the paving and the the consistency of the seats to keep the uniformity of the street then you pick yeah. up that piece of infrastructure and you try it somewhere else and it connects to
1: two things in that we did talk about a bit and, and and i think we need to cover just now is one is about the tactical urbanism doing things you know lighter quicker cheaper pilot projects about let's try this here it doesn't cost us a lot if it works we'll keep we'll make it permanent if it doesn't work we'll take it out and these are great ways for communities and councils to work together to experiment and allow people to have their head a bit to you know co-create the design with the community um, work it through do the investment it's not a lot of money if it works keep it you know, or make it better.
3: And most often it works. We had this conversation so many times about people who didn't want change but saw temporary road closures, temporary widening of footpaths, temporary bicycle lanes, temporary plantings, temporary seatings, and pretty much every single time uh, they'll come back and then say, if you remove this, we're going to make sure we don't vote for you at the next election. And so... But that doesn't always the case. And we, we had this conversation around making mistakes, and how an entrepreneurial organisation makes lots of mistakes and that the elected members need to support the administration, uh, the CEO needs to support the administration, the media needs to support the administration. Um, And, you know, I've failed my way to this podcast, put my whole life... (laughs) Uh, you have? No, no, I don't, because when you were Lord Mayor, you did have
1: a go. You did sort of support the staff to have a crack at some of these things and with many notable successes. Stephen, we're dancing around one of the big uh, gorillas in the room or whatever that is saying is, isn't it? You know, we've touched on where the parklets go up to car then, had been used lost. for car parking. Yeah.
3: Oh, outrageous. Um, yes, yeah. and car parking is a great... Uh, it's a classic one. Honestly, every city is different, but if you did a survey of every main street trader uh, on every main street in every city in Australia, uh, the number one thing they'll... they'll um, unless they're a quirky... A quirky one. Uh, the one thing they'll come back is we need more car parking. Uh, but we did walk around on the busiest day. We did see a whole pile of uh, car parks at 50% occupancy and and historically all the planning, all of the creation of these cities has been planned around cars to the point where we plan for that four hours a year where every single car park is full, and it's generally on Christmas Eve when dads have forgotten to go out and buy their presents until the last moment, they all rush into the city. But not the, we that we generalise,
5: on... is it? That? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's right. very, At least no. I'm pointing at myself. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, you know, I didn't say grandfathers. No, no, no. that's right. <laughs> and and so what we've got is uh, this. The perception that we need more car parking in a city, when occupancy is probably sitting somewhere between forty and sixty percent most days, and, yeah, would, and would might get to ninety percent on two or three days a year.
1: Yeah, the council actually has its own surveys, which are basically showing exactly that in downtown Mariborough. But of course, there's this expectation that you have in any cities of just about any size that people think they they should be able to go and park it right outside where they're going to, and of course, you know that as you start to think of car parking differently, you know, people realise that people walking along the street will actually um, likely to spend more money than if they're driving along
3: the Uh, street. The the data is clear. More time, more money. You're having those incidental uh, social experiences. Um, I recently saw a report on uh, diabetes in Australian cities Uh, and South Australia is one of the worst, but uh, it's often the country towns that have the highest rates of diabetes and interestingly enough the city of Adelaide, the downtown, has the lowest rate of diabetes in South Australia because all you need to do is walk for about 30 minutes every day to burn off the um, the, the glycogen in your, in your muscles. And it's not that simple, of course. Um, but, you know, sugar is energy. Energy is used when you exercise, even if it's mild exercise, and you get diabetes from having too much insulin, uh, too much sugar in your system. Yeah, yeah. So, so the evidence sort of is really, really clear, yeah, isn't it? So there's some really basic things about yeah. that. Yeah,
1: well, that's right. And, but I did like the little vignette that happened when we were on the, the walks shop when uh, the CEO actually passed a, a place that he he wasn't aware of and ducked in and bought something that was a collector's item that he was interested in that he said, I would never have done this if I hadn't been walking past. And yeah. so it was just a little example, which was kind of cute and yeah. neat, the way it fitted in. Yeah. But, um, you know, the car parking conversation, you know, there's evidence in lots of places. Uh, I like the story of K Road, Karanga Happy Road in, in in Auckland, where uh, they've taken a street that was had a lot of parking and converted it into mostly... A space for other activities, including bikes uh, p- bigger footpaths, some transit, and so on when they surveyed when they came you know were doing working their way through this, they asked the um, traders how many people they thought came to their businesses by car and they thought about sixty four percent they surveyed the actual customers and the figure was seventeen percent so there's often a perception that the car is the vital way of getting people there, but it 's actually not the reality in a lot of, in most places where you see this has been done yeah. so that telling that story is a really important part
3: isn 't it yeah, for sure, and we, we could just provide millions of examples and, and go on about this, but I think it also then the car parking then connects into a couple of things. Firstly, transport choice. And secondly, um, also this sense uh, that we've uh, that downtown Maryborough doesn't have very wide roads, but there's always going to be a conversation about um, creating a mall, doing a one-way street in particular. Um, and But also then where do you put the bicycle lanes? Where do you plant the trees? There seems to be a really important need not just to sort of tackled the car parking conversation but how do they use their carriageway from building to building in the most efficient way to create the best possible outcome for people who spend time in that city so that might be thinning the light. that might be bicycle lanes that might be thinning the the laneway so the cars go slowly 40 kilometers an hour was a was a a, a discussion uh, we had as well
1: that's right exactly you know re-engineering your streets effectively to how you use the the space differently you know this is a key part of this and and doing this all as part of as we said it earlier you know as part of a cohesive plan rather than just picking and choosing bits is the key piece in this
3: you know when you put in a parklet you're doing a whole pile of things you're increasing the greenery you're improving seating um you're you're sort of taking away a little bit of car parking, your... Um, I, I remember we went down to Adelaide Street and I did point out that there's not a single thing for kids to climb on. I, I even suggested going back to their, uh, their, their council depot and, and sifting through all the really old stuff and pulling some of the tarps up. Uh, they'll probably find some interesting old pieces of art. Um, the, the boys and, and girls at the depot could probably whack a bit of extra paint on some some of the playground equipment that does meet Oc Health and Safety, um, you know, sand it back, put it back out there. Um, So there's all sorts of cheap and affordable things you can do. Um, I I will always stand on a street corner in a city and say, what's going to excite the kids? I think that's a really important one. Yeah, Uh, it's
1: that whole idea, isn't it, about, you know, making cities, places for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds, and then it'll work for everyone. You know, I think we had the conversation, too, about this general idea of all of these things we're talking about, you know, more greenery in the city, more trees, sort of more shade, because is hot in summer, and for a fair bit of the year. It's about making the downtown a place to go to rather than go through. And Kent Street, one of the major streets, does carry an awful lot of through traffic, which is basically driving right through the CBD but really isn't doing anything for the CBD. In fact, it's making it less attractive as a place for people to dwell because of the, the volume of cars and the noise and all the other things that go with that. That's why we're sort of trying to put this as a basket of things that you look at Comprehensively, and do that in a smaller area for starters and then build your way out.
3: That's really well said, Greg. David ingwich who's also a really well-known placemaker, uh, described it as mental speed bumps and this idea of slowing people down. The, there was some subtle conversation that some people had complained that it was taking them so long to drive through the city. And the real point is why on earth would you want anyone to drive through town quickly and then there's a whole thing of you know who wants to have an outdoor dining experience next to a traffic jam or a a freeway the number one fear of women in in downtown retail environments is the speed of traffic Um, you know if you've got kids Mm -hmm. you know you don't want cars going past at high rates there's so much to this the trees one is an interesting one because it's such a no brainer I think anyone listening to this episode is going to be going like you so I tuned in to listen to a podcast to say that you need more trees in cities their tree situation was really unfortunate because historically they were put in, they weren't put in very well, they were put in not necessarily in, in underground storage containers and what people don't realise often is that when you plant trees in cities and you don't do it well the roots, the trees grow really well but they grow in, they get into the sewage uh, pipes, they yeah. get into the water pipes they can start to crack buildings, they can really start to, and then it has to be correlated too, you can get the undergrounding of the, the power line so that the trees can actually blossom to their full extent. There's a lot of strategic planning and thinking that goes into trees. Also in particular you got to work out where they can go in the street because, um, you know, if the street carriageways are thin and you've got pipes and wires all underneath, um, I, I have to admit I'd be really interested to see how they could potentially put trees down the middle of some of those streets, because I think that's where yeah. you get the best bang for buck. Not easy. That's a
1: possibility. Might, you, might, you know, you maybe you all... lose parking on one side for part of it, or or you take some parks and put the trees in there. But like you say, I mean, as we, as we noted uh, in a few of the sessions, that people driving drive to how they perceive the conditions. Not to the speed limit. So, if you get, if you create a part of this downtown where the cars are looking out for the people rather than the other way around mm. you'll create a different and better place for people who want to dwell, and makes it a nicer place to be in. And uh, then you create the conditions where the other things will work well.
3: Here's a quirky one for Queensland. Uh, I noticed when we were driving up there and back. Often there's a sign that says Business District. Is that what they say? Uh, business business centre. centre. Yeah, and I always remember when we were in Canberra, and you drive into downtown Canberra, and it sort of says City Centre. And I've always had this giggle that we've had to have a sign that designates where the CBD is, <laughs> yeah. because you know I'd like to think that you know when you come to a CBD, it's going to be really obvious because there's bigger buildings, and there's you know it's just, you know there's grand boulevards, and there's wide footpaths, and there's yeah. coffee shops and <laughs> yeah. and all of those sorts of things. So how they can adopt the sorts of things that you've just talked about in a way that provides the visual reinforcement that it's a business centre is, is much... No, no criticism of the sign, but it's just funny. You know, you either put up yeah, a yeah. sign or, or you actually just do stuff. I guess the other element to that we've already touched on is this idea of inner-city housing. We didn't really bang on about it too much, but bringing people back in, bringing the walkability, bringing back the local residents, the, the champions that are going to to argue for this type of infrastructure is, is a really big part of that as well. So That's right, and I think,
1: I think yeah, this is the sort of thing that once you actually offer the product... There will be a market for it, but when there's no one doing it now because the product is not on offer, so it's all part of unlocking the upstairs of some of the heritage buildings but also encouraging some new development around the city. When there's a vibe, people will want to live near the vibe, so it's all part and parcel. It's not the first thing you do necessarily, but it's an important component, I reckon.
3: Yeah, and I think uh, the other element there, in terms of just the co-creation as we start to wrap up, is creating a sense of urgency. So I've always kind of noticed that the cities that change more rapidly are the ones that have a sense of urgency. Amsterdam was seeing a lot of their children killed by cars. Um, Christchurch got smashed by um, more than one earthquake. Uh, Detroit is doing community gardening to the nth degree because they've they've really suffered from the new economy and, and car manufacturing. I think they're down to two car factories at a high of something like 30-odd car factories. So they're just planting food in, in every sort of spare little spot they've got. So this creating a sense of urgency around a specific area and potentially saying, right, we're going to do this for the next two years... And if, as a building owner or as a business, you don't co-create, that you don't get council grant funding to, to support things, to do things, to improve the heritage buildings, to deal with building code, et cetera, et cetera, and that we're going to be moving on to another part of town after that, does put a Bunsen burner under you. It does provide a, a sense of urgency around co-creation, and it unlocks all the dollars in the community to realise the outcomes that are they're going to then add value, not only yep. to, the, to, the, to the people themselves, but to, to the visitors.
1: Never waste a good crisis, someone said once, with some great uh, insight. So yeah, we can probably
3: start to say, well, let's draw a few threads together. Stephen, what do you reckon? Let's talk about that. We've touched on the fact for a vision. And I think um, I'm a big believer that it's not just a vision that they write and stick on the shelf, but it's a vision they teach in schools, primary schools, high schools. Try and get it down to a single line. Use that in the the, the infrastructure that they put in. You know, if they're doing works, they, like in the private sector, they're their, their meshing up with their brand. Um, there's so many ways that they can reinforce their vision. You know, get it down to a great sentence that everyone can quote, no matter where they are in the world. Get it down to a great story create this vision and and then because one of the biggest problems is residents go oh I don't want that but if they start to appreciate that it's not building cities isn't all about them and that there are other people that will use it and they do want to keep young people in the city A, a person um our age might not necessarily want a bicycle lane but the young people do and so having a vision that will help people understand that building cities is not all about them and it's all about a collective community i think is a is a really important part of articulating the vision of what is a as a beautiful and and culturally rich um, community
1: the point about the vision i think is that we're not trying to tell them what that vision is we're sort of saying i think that the trick here our idea is to actually have a process which allows the co-creation of a that compelling Vision, you know, led by the the council, but involving the community, involving the the council staff and the and the, off, the elected reps, and just generally sort of getting through a process. Because I always say about a vision, it's really hard to know how you're going to get somewhere if you don't know where it is you're trying to get to. You know, yes. so the vision becomes the light on the hill, doesn't it? The yeah. Comes and, the...
3: and Victorian cities do a, commu- a twenty or thirty year community plan. It's required under their legislation. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to constantly change. But one of the real successes of councils that have transformed is the the administration working really well with the elected members to get a vision and then all future mayors councillors CEOs staff executive try and stay that course it's yep. one of the biggest challenges is elected members get elected because they want to fix things they want to change things and so that consistency over a 10 20 30 year uh, process and you know melbourne's the great example they really got it right over a over a long period and so saw a transformation where they were twiddling with lots of knobs uh, from land use to uh, residential to footpaths to you know trees to all the infrastructure you need and, and so having that long term vision uh, which also then actually throws to potentially conversation around you know whether there's going to be high speed rail one day to Brisbane you know you'll never get Infrastructure, unless you set yourself the goal of of having the conversation in the first place. So it doesn't doesn't all have to come true, but it's the difference between Maryborough getting a demographer to say, based on your history, your population will be 30, 35,000 in 10 years versus the community saying no, we want to be less or no, we want to be more. We could be 60,000. We just need to lobby, you know, we need to lobby to make sure the trains are there, that the, the speeds are there, that the infrastructure is well maintained, that the land is affordable, that we've got adequate industrial land and it's all of those things that give them the choice and I think that's exactly. comes back to the vision. You either plan a city you expect or you expect to get a great city that you plan.
1: So I think that's the that's starting point. And a coherent vision actually creates alignment over time. Uh, yep. People sort of get it and it becomes just part of, you know, how people do things. So that's really important. Yep. And then there's the, that part of that vision, I think, is the point that you'd made when we were on site about getting some clarity about what the aspirations are for the role of Mariborough versus the role of Harvey Bay, for you know, sure. sort of. That that's a really key piece, you know. What they do in both is important. There's the opportunity here for the whole to be greater than the sum of the parts if they're working together in a complementary way. It's it's not about a, a competition between the two. It's about how do we create roles for both of them that make them both better and the whole region better.
3: Yeah, for sure. And and I, you know, there's a big part of this is there are going to be a lot of people that come to Harvey Bay to, to sit on a balcony and watch the waves roll in, uh, but then want to come into to Mary borough to go to a museum or an art gallery, uh, to have a nice meal, to catch up with people, to do, you know, those sorts of things, as yeah. have, have that authentic Main Street experience. It's very much about how each urban space complements each other, you know. Maybe one of the great things about Australia is that Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, Darwin, etc., Hobart are all really different and they do different things. You know, if everyone made yeah. great wine, Adelaide would be a boring place. But then it's
1: a question of where you start, isn't it, you know? And so I think that idea of uh, when you understand what your vision is for Mariborough to be the best version of itself in the future, like that idea, as we've talked about a couple of times about focusing in on a key part yep. and put some of these f- foundational ideas in place, you know, it's sort of starting to, in my past, I ran an economic development program at one point and that logic about local economic development, do something small, soon and successful, because because success breeds success. And so I think that's their opportunity here to sort of work out which bit of the downtown they're going to go and sort of create the laboratory to run some of these things through, get it firing, and then they can start to say, well, let's have more of that.
3: Yeah, and it's not for us to tell the council how to do it, but this this idea of a one-stop shop, where potentially having a a single place manager who is actually engaged to focus on that block or those two blocks or those three blocks and think across council, I think, is is one of the big challenges because local government does its absolute best. But, you know, when one arm of local government is, is doing everything they can to get something across the line and the other arm of local government is saying, well, no, there's a national code that says you can't do that at all it's a really bad message for the council so it's it's also about that service culture of infusing a, we're here to help, infusing a we-want-to-find-solutions and, and having people who are prepared to meet on a corner in the city itself to have a conversation with a wide range of skilled experts to solve a problem rather than actually articulate the barriers. That's
1: right, and and, and why do you want to solve that problem? Because this will be a key part of delivering the vision, you know, so you can always tie it back to that, isn't it? This is what we want here. I like the place manager and the place making component thinking about that is that this is a way you can curate, curate a place. So mm-hmm. if you're going to do the tactical urbanism, if you're going to kind of run a program of activities, if you're going to sort of do the markets and the festivals and things, make this all part of a program rather than just a sort of let's do this now and that didn't work we'll try this you know that sense of curating what's going on in a place i think is really important
3: yeah and we we actually haven't got much of a conclusion other other than sort of sort of say we had a fantastic time but i think for me that is a really big part of it is historically people who planned and then built cities did just that and then they created a city and expected residents to live in it. And I think we're now starting to see uh, a transformation uh, underway, a very subtle transformation, um, but it's getting there where we're starting to have a conversation more about the citizens and the city that we think would be good for the citizens rather than the citizens, which citizens are good for our city. And so the idea of actually. Programming cities around the demands, around the opportunities, around the small industries, around the big industries, around the heritage, around the future, I think is a really, really important part of, of not just, you know, classic example of we did the footpaths, why isn't there anyone turning up? Yeah that's
1: right the whole point about transport choice and and rethinking how you're using the land between the front of the buildings which we call the street uh, is a key piece that introducing more greenery more activity on the street um, more things that kids can do more reasons for young people to want to be in the in the city finding a way to unlock the enormous potential of the heritage building asset that they have there is just awesome what they've got and, and then that whole place about you know starting small working out.
3: You know, it really is about small cities just want to be big cities. Big cities want to be a series of villages. And this idea of concentrating on the downtown village in an authentic way and getting more people to come and spend more time and more money and have more pleasure from that experience is is really what it's all about. So it's about bringing the humanness element back to cities as much as possible, and that that means getting people together.
1: Brilliant, mate. That's a good place to finish. I'd just like to perhaps wrap things up now by sort of saying we were so grateful to have the opportunity. We thank the people, the good people at the Fraser Coast Regional Council, Uh, we thank everyone that we spoke to for their passion and sharing their views and ideas and time with us and we hope that we have made some difference and they given perhaps some impetus to their future Mariborough.